Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A box that holds the seeds to a sinister terror plot. They said, death to America, you have been poisoned with anthrax. An icon's death that is shrouded in mystery. And it was labeled a probable suicide. And a Civil War submarine that vanishes without a trace. There was desperation on board that night. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics. Each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. In the heart of downtown Atlanta sits an institution dedicated to educating visitors about the planet's most terrifying outbreaks. This is the David J. Sensor Centers for Disease Control Museum. Among the many chilling displays is this seemingly simple cardboard box. And according to CDC scientist Dr. Tanya Popovic, it harkens back to a time when panic, paranoia, and death stalked the nation. The box itself is just like a regular carton box, but it has a number of labels that describe the biosafety hazard. The contents that once traveled in this box killed five people and shut down the nation's capital. So what did this box once carry? October 2001. The nation is still reeling from the attacks of September 11th, when doctors at a Florida hospital admit a 63-year-old man. He is disoriented, unable to speak, and is running a high fever. When they give the patient a spinal tap, the tests reveal a startling diagnosis. 
a physician looked at the microscopic results and he said, I think this person might have anthrax. Anthrax is a deadly disease caused by a bacterium that grows in soil. But the disease is typically contracted by animals, not people. So doctors immediately alert the Centers for Disease Control. It just didn't seem logical that this guy would have been in any place where he could have been exposed to anthrax. Investigators at the CDC immediately get to work to establish how this office worker could have contracted the disease. Objects from the victim's home and office are carefully packed in special biohazard boxes, like this one, and shipped to Atlanta. And when CDC investigators inspect the contents, they find the man's keyboard is covered in microscopic anthrax spores. And that was the moment where we were absolutely sure that this could not have been a naturally occurring disease because anthrax spores could not find their ways to an office and somebody's keyboard. Before investigators have time to get any further, a shocking news story erupts. People around the country are being diagnosed with anthrax. And letters containing anthrax start to appear at the offices of high-profile figures, like U.S. Senator Tom Daschle and NBC News anchor Tom Brokaw. Accompanying the letters are sinister handwritten notes. They said, death to America, death to Israel, you have been poisoned with anthrax. Anthrax, it seems, is everywhere, and it appears to be traveling through the mail. These letters ended up causing infections among at least 22 people, and five died. The Capitol, the Supreme Court, were found to have anthrax. In the wake of 9-11, these mysterious cases all seem to point to one culprit, terrorists, armed this time with biological weapons instead of planes. It became clear to virtually everybody that this was a deliberate attack. Then, as quickly as the attack started, they stop. But behind the scenes, the FBI continues to search for those responsible, interviewing over 10,000 witnesses on six different continents. And finally, in 2008, they hone in on a possible culprit. An American scientist who was consulting with the FBI when the anthrax outbreak first started. His name is Bruce Ivins. Bruce Ivins was assigned to developing a vaccine against anthrax. And I believe the FBI considered him uh, an asset to uh, their investigation. But as the FBI looks closer into Ivins' behavior, a different picture emerges. He was known to send threats and letters of complaint rather freely to members of Congress. He had kept a separate postal box. He would send these secret letters out with some pseudonym. What's more, the FBI claims that Ivan's lab contains a strain of anthrax identical to the one used in the attacks. Investigators suspect that Ivan's twisted motivation is to promote an anthrax vaccine that he has created by making people sick with anthrax. What he was aiming to do, theoretically, was to get the concerns about anthrax higher up on the agenda. But as the FBI prepares to charge him with murder, 
Ivans commits suicide. The FBI's contention was that it was because he would have felt so assured of a conviction that he couldn't bear it. Soon after Ivan's death, the government declares the case closed. But close observers of the anthrax scare continue to harbor doubts about Ivan's guilt. Doubts linger, and they will continue to linger in the same way that there are conspiracy theories that go on and on. The true identity of the anthrax killer may always be debated. But this ominous biohazard box from that sudden outbreak still sits at the CDC Museum in Atlanta, reminding visitors of a harrowing time when terror was delivered through the mail. Hollywood, California. In this illustrious, sometimes infamous town, sits a shrine to its history of celebrity. This is the Hollywood Museum. Here, artifacts ranging from the golden era of the silver screen to today live on. But among these treasures of glitz and glam, says curator Donnell Danigan, is one that looks out of place. It's a plastic bottle, two and a half inches tall. It has a white plastic cap on it. The label may be old and faded, but the name printed on it is unmistakable. It's inscribed to Marilyn Monroe. It's a pill bottle that sits at the center of one of the most hotly debated mysteries of all time. The sudden and perplexing death of the most famous sex symbol of the 20th century, Marilyn Monroe. In the official shots that were taken after Marilyn's death, it shows the nightstand, and that pill bottle is sitting on that nightstand. Were the pills in this bottle behind Marilyn Monroe's death? Or was there something much more sinister at play? August 5th, 1962, Los Angeles, California. The LAPD gets a call. A woman has been found dead inside her home. When police arrive at the scene, they quickly identify the young woman as none other than Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn was lying in her bed, covered with a sheet, and she was completely straight. Since her first big break in 1950, Marilyn Monroe had become Hollywood's it girl. Her sex appeal and comedic timing made her one of the biggest stars in the world. Marilyn Monroe was the ultimate Hollywood icon. But recently, Marilyn's life had come crashing down around her. She was plagued by rumors of drug addiction and even did a stint in a mental institution. Though her recent downfall is well known to the detectives who now stand over her body, her death is nothing short of shocking. It doesn't take long to hone in on what appears to be the most obvious piece of evidence. The pill bottles on, on Marilyn's bedside table, antihistamines, the nembutal, chloral hydrate. She was taking a lot of medications. Officers suspect that the star overdosed on these drugs, taking her own life. And when the autopsy results come back, the coroner finds that Marilyn does have fatal levels of barbiturates in her blood. Her system was full of, of drugs. Certainly that seems to be the cause of her death. And it was labeled a probable suicide. 
the case seems officially closed. But almost immediately, those closest to Marilyn come forward to cast their doubt on the official verdict. They insist she was in fine spirits, far from the desperate and depressed woman who would take her own life. Many people believe that she was finally getting everything back together. She seemed to be very happy, actually. And when details from the autopsy emerge just days later, among the coroner's notes is a glaring omission. He finds no evidence or residue of pills in Marilyn's stomach. If Marilyn had overdosed on sleeping pills, why weren't remnants of the drugs found in her stomach? Adding fuel to the fire, the position of her body didn't suggest a suicidal overdose. If someone has died of a drug overdose, you're normally much more contorted. You're literally suffering as you're dying. So, did Marilyn really kill herself? Or was there someone or something else at play? It's 1962. Hollywood star Marilyn Monroe has been found dead at the age of 36. On her nightstand are several empty pill bottles, including the one on display at the Hollywood Museum. Monroe's death is ruled a probable suicide, but many have their doubts. But if she didn't overdose on drugs, how did she die? More strange details from the police report emerge about the one person who was known to be with Marilyn the night she died. Her housekeeper, Eunice Murray. She was with Marilyn right to the very end. Officers on the scene say Murray was cleaning Marilyn's bedsheets when they arrived and seemed agitated. Why was Eunice Murray doing laundry at that early hour in the morning? But despite her peculiar behavior, police find no evidence of Murray's direct involvement in Marilyn's death. And many turn to another theory centered around a critical item that has allegedly gone missing, her diary. One of the conspiracies about the reason that Marilyn was killed was that she was recording in a diary her relationships with the Kennedy family. And when they discovered that she was documenting what was happening, they silenced her. The diary is never recovered leaving many to wonder if it was quietly removed from Marilyn's bedroom before cops could get to it. So was Marilyn privy to secrets of America's most powerful family? Did someone feel she simply knew too much? Or did she really die from an overdose, taking her own life? Maybe it's, it's part of the lingering legacy of Marilyn that her death will never be totally understood. But today, her legacy is preserved in the Hollywood Museum's Blonde Room, a place devoted to the glamorous icon whose enduring fans may never get the answers they seek. Charleston, South Carolina. It was in this bustling port city that the American Civil War began. And at the Warren Lash Conservation Center, this historic feud between the North and South is on display. Here, the center's most prized possession is a unique and deadly machine. It's metallic, it's 42 feet in length. It's kept in a tank under very controlled conditions. 
a rusting behemoth that State Senator Glenn McConnell knows was conceived way ahead of its time. This is the H.L. Hunley. The H.L. Hunley is the world's first successful combat submarine. This stealth weapon altered the face of naval warfare forever. But the night of its proudest achievement was also the moment of its greatest tragedy. What happened to the H.L. Hunley and its crew? February 1864, Charleston, South Carolina. The Civil War is in full swing, and the largest seaport in the South is under siege. Its supply lines cut off by a fierce Union blockade. To keep the war effort going, they need the goods and ornaments coming in from overseas. They are desperate. One young engineer thinks he's found a way to break the naval blockade that is strangling the port. His name is Lieutenant George E. Dixon. And he's been working on an extraordinary vessel that will attack the Union ships from below. The H.L. Hunley. The Hunley was 50 years ahead of its time and its construction. But innovation comes at a cost. For the past seven months, engineers have been testing the Hunley with disastrous results. It had already sunk twice. It had killed the chief financier and inventor. All told, the Hunley has claimed the lives of 13 men. But despite the vessel's dubious track record, Dixon volunteers to command it into battle himself. Lieutenant Dixon had helped build this. He knew the weapon can break the federal blockade. I'm your man that can do it. On the evening of February 17th, just before 7 p.m., Dixon and his men prepare to launch the submersible. The target was USS Susitani, one of the newest, fastest ships in the federal fleet. This daunting foe is manned by 155 sailors. The Hunley has a crew of just eight volunteers. Men who believe so strongly in the Southern cause, they're willing to risk it all. The submarine was about three feet by three feet wide. Very claustrophobic. Initially, the mission goes smoothly. Inside the sub, the sailors propel their vessel forward by furiously turning a hand crank. It is determination, courage, almost a sacrificial attitude of, I will accomplish this or I'll die trying. Almost two hours later, with the Hunley less than 100 yards from its target, the crew of the Housatonic spots a strange vessel lurking just below the water. What they saw was an object like they'd never seen. For Dixon and his men, it's now or never. They torpedo the warship, then flee the scene. And then the Housatonic is rocked by explosions. The mighty Housatonic sinks in just five minutes, killing five Union men. There was desperation on board that night. Sheer disbelief. Delighted by their victory, the Confederate troops wait on shore for the return of Lieutenant Dixon and his crew of heroes. But the hours would pass and the Hunley would not appear. The Hunley would never come home. Thus begins an epic search for answers that will span more than a century. What happened to the Hunley and its crew? 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. When the HL Hunley torpedoes the USS Housatonic, it becomes the first submarine to successfully sink an enemy warship. But after its historic mission, the Hunley and its crew suddenly vanish. Where did they go? And what went wrong? In the years following the Hunley's disappearance, countless salvage teams go in search of the ill-fated vessel, but to no avail. Until May 3rd, 1995. Using new technology to comb the pitch-black ocean floor, a group of wreck hunters announces that they have finally located the legendary sub. The Hunley was actually 500 yards seaward of the Housatonic. Previous search teams had missed the much smaller sub because it was almost entirely buried in the ocean floor. She sank in an area where the bottom of the ocean is very unstable. So between four and nine months, she was covered up to the tops of her hatches. After 136 years underwater, the Hunley and its crew are finally brought back to port and given a permanent home at the Warren Lash Conservation Center. Here, scientists get to work, trying to find out what happened the night of the vessel's fateful voyage. One leading theory has been that the Hunley was damaged when the Housatonic was blown up, causing the sub to take on water and the crew to drown. But when we got to the Hunley, that started to fade very fast. They expect to find evidence of panic, bodies bunched under the exits as the men tried to escape their sinking sub. 
the scene they encounter is very different. The crew, they were all sitting in their duty stations, just like they had gone to sleep that night. The final moments appear to be very peaceful. This startling forensic evidence leads scientists to a new theory, that perhaps the men didn't drown at all. I think that they passed out. Were they sitting on the bottom hiding from the Federal Navy? And did they miscalculate their oxygen? We don't really know yet. With the scientific team that we have, we will solve the mystery. But until that day, scientists continue their work at the Warren Lash Conservation Center, trying to understand a 100-year-old piece of weaponry that was decades ahead of its time. Downtown New York City, the financial center of the nation. Nestled amongst the major banking institutions lies a museum dedicated to the history of American capitalism. This is the Museum of American Finance. Amidst these relics of financial success sits one item that speaks of greed, deceit, and downfall. Richard Silla is the chairman of the board of trustees for the museum. It's a sort of rectangular white piece of paper. Printed with green ink, it is inscribed with the English and French languages and is valued at six cents. What is this piece of paper? And what role did it play in one of the most notorious financial scams in American history? Boston, Massachusetts, 1919. In the shadow of World War I, the U.S. is emerging as the global economic leader. One Boston investment firm is taking advantage of the climate. Called the Securities Exchange Company, its founder is Italian immigrant Charles Ponzi. Yeah, he was a dapper Italian. He dressed well. And so I think he made a good impression on people. The smooth-talking Ponzi offers investors a deal unrivaled by competitors. Ponzi promises to pay people 50% uh, interest on their money in 45 days, at a time when if you put your money in the bank, uh, you might get 5% interest for a whole year. And to his investors' delight, he seems to deliver. Soon, new investors are lining up to give Ponzi cash. Within a year, he rakes in $8 million, worth $101 million today. And the seemingly hard-working Ponzi is living in the lap of luxury. So Ponzi had the nicest car in Boston. He had just bought himself a fancy house. And everyone thought, well, I want to get in on that too. His business is booming, but the ambitious Ponzi is hungry for more. He hires a man named William McMasters to promote his enterprise. But as McMasters digs deeper into the business, he finds some unsettling information. The seemingly wealthy Ponzi is actually millions of dollars in debt. He's been spending on credit. McMasters chronicles the revelation on the front page of a local paper. Ponzi's investors are shocked and demand that their hard-earned money be returned. And when enough people do that, Ponzi doesn't have the money to pay them. In search of the money trail, reporters look into Ponzi's business dealings. 
and discover that, more than a decade earlier, he was convicted of forging checks, and his well-crafted persona is a sham. He was basically a con man, fraudster in much of his career. If Ponzi was bringing in millions, why is he in debt? And what did this con man do with his investors' money? It's 1920. Italian immigrant Charles Ponzi is arrested for defrauding his company's investors. Authorities discover that this smooth-talking businessman's past is littered with shady dealings. So how was Ponzi able to convince the people of Boston to give him millions? The story begins a year earlier, when Ponzi is on the hunt for a get-rich-quick scheme. He stumbles upon his ticket to millions when he receives a package from colleagues overseas. They included with it one of these international postal coupons. Coupons like this one at the American Museum of Finance were created to foster international correspondence. People would buy these coupons in one country and send them to a recipient in another country. The recipient could then redeem the coupons for postage stamps. In this simple piece of paper, Charles Ponzi saw a pathway to riches. He believes he can sell the stamps for a profit. He could buy the coupons in Italy very cheaply. You bring them to the United States where money is worth more and you use them to exchange for postage that's worth a lot more and you could actually make something like a 500% profit. Ponzi puts together a business plan to purchase vast quantities of international coupons, all the while promising investors huge returns. But there's a problem with this equation. There wasn't enough purchase and sale of international postal coupons for Ponzi to actually make the profits that he was claiming. Ponzi's entire business plan is a ruse. He pockets investors' money instead of buying postal coupons. In fact, he's only purchased $61 worth of the postal coupons. So if Ponzi wasn't making money this way, how was he able to pay his early investors millions? The early investors were being paid from the money coming in from the later investors. After first paying himself, Ponzi simply took money from new investors and used it to pay early investors their promised return. Once the depth of his duplicity is discovered, Ponzi is convicted on federal charges of mail fraud and is sentenced to five years in federal prison. To this day, financial fraud that pays initial investors with the deposits of subsequent investors is called a Ponzi scheme. And this coupon remains at the American Museum of Finance in New York, reminding us of the man whose name is synonymous with fraud. Winged wonders from throughout the ages adorn the massive halls at the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. Amongst these soaring examples of aeronautical engineering, rests what may be a remnant of aviation history. Dan Hagedorn is the museum's curator. It's a metal fragment. Uh, if it were straightened out, it'd probably be about a foot long uh, by about four to five inches in, in width. 
Some believe this artifact played a part in changing the course of an epic journey undertaken by the world's most celebrated female pilot, and that it sheds light on one of aviation's greatest mysteries. Did this shard of metal really come from Amelia Earhart's airplane? And what clues can it offer as to why her final flight descended into tragedy? July 1937. Five years after becoming the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic, Amelia Earhart is a living legend, and she is about to make history again. She was going to try to circumnavigate the Earth. That was her objective. Having crossed America, the Atlantic, Africa, and Asia, Earhart is on track to becoming the first woman to achieve this jaw-dropping feat. But the most harrowing leg of her journey lies ahead. The 2,500 miles from New Guinea to Howland Island. Howland Island was only a, f a few miles long, so it's, it's a very small island in this massive Pacific Ocean. Earhart and her navigator search for this tiny landmass, guided by the stars and a compass. But picking the small island out of the vast Pacific is nearly impossible. So a U.S. Coast Guard ship is stationed nearby to guide the plane in by sending a radio signal. But it seems that Earhart isn't receiving the messages. It becomes increasingly clear aboard this Coast Guard cruiser that Earhart's having a very difficult time establishing her location on the map. Hours go by, and the plane doesn't arrive on Howland Island. The Coast Guard escort begins to fear the worst for Earhart and her navigator. She only had a limited amount of fuel remaining. When that fuel was exhausted, she had no alternative but to either try to find a landmass or go down in the ocean. A massive rescue operation is launched. But after 16 days of searching, there is no sign of the iconic pilot or her plane. And authorities conclude that she is likely dead. The plane likely wandered off course in the Pacific Ocean, where she and her co-pilot perished. For the next 70 years, people theorize about Earhart's fate and launch fruitless searches for any trace of the pilot or her aircraft. Then, in 2009, this shard of metal is lent to the Museum of Flight. Its owner claims that it is part of Earhart's lost plane, the same aircraft that disappeared over the Pacific. Is this really a part of Earhart's plane? And if so, what role did it play in her demise? In 1937, during her epic attempt to fly around the world, Amelia Earhart and her plane suddenly disappear and are presumed lost forever. Then, 70 years later, this shard of metal is donated to the Museum of Flight in Seattle. Its owner claims it is part of Earhart's missing plane. Could it provide a vital clue that explains her disappearance? 1992. 17-year-old John Ott receives a gift from his grandmother. A metal shard that she claims is from Earhart's lost plane. But how did she come by this piece of metal? Ott tries to verify that the artifact came from Earhart's plane, a Lockheed Electra 10E. The key to the plane's design lies in its one-of-a-kind aluminum covering. 
A test of the shard confirms his grandmother's claim. It contains the same unique aluminum compounds used in Earhart's plane. It's the only artifact that actually can be verified as having come from the Lockheed Chani that belonged to Amelia Earhart. But where did this one-of-a-kind artifact come from? Repair records of Earhart's Electra reveal the event that may have produced this shard. A devastating accident that happened five months before Earhart's disappearance that may have altered the course of her final flight. March 1937. Earhart sets off on her epic trans-global journey and for the first leg flies from California to Hawaii. And it went very well, and she landed in Hawaii and prepared to take off across the Pacific. With the first 2,400 miles behind her, Earhart prepares for the next leg of the trip across the Pacific. But then, fate changes her plans. They were getting ready to take off. The left gear collapsed. The aircraft basically went into what's called a ground loop. A ground loop is similar to a car skidding at high speeds, and it sends the aircraft spinning out of control. But finally, the plane comes to a stop, and Earhart walks away unharmed. Crew members in the Army Air Corps were detailed to clean up the mess. And one of them is Army Air Corpsman Dan Stringer, the grandfather of John Ott. There were some fragments on the ground, he picked one up, but didn't think much of it at the time. The plane is sent back to the mainland for repairs, but the damage is so extensive that Earhart is grounded and her voyage delayed for over a month. During this month, she began to develop reservations about her choice of route. After careful consideration, Earhart decides to alter the course of her ambitious flight. Rather than fly west across the Pacific, she'll fly east across America and the Atlantic first. One of the reasons that she chose to take on the Atlantic Ocean first was a fear of developing weather patterns, uh, and she didn't want to have to cross that ocean during the hurricane season. But this change in route leaves the most difficult leg of the journey across the vast Pacific to the end of her exhausting 22,000-mile flight. It's a decision some believe Earhart would come to regret. When she got to the Pacific Ocean, she was worn out, she was tired, she had suffered from numerous bouts with dysentery. To this day, the whereabouts of Earhart's body and the rest of her plane is a mystery. But this shard of metal remains at the Museum of Flight in Seattle, reminding us of the iconic figure who gave flight to the dreams of countless Americans and of the accident that changed the course of her infamous final flight. Sitting in the desert outside Tucson, Arizona, is an underground facility that offers a rare glimpse into the world of nuclear weaponry. This is the Titan Missile Museum. According to director Yvonne Morris, this structure once housed an unthinkable doomsday weapon known as the Titan II missile. It was the most powerful warhead that the United States ever deployed on a land-based missile. Yet two of the most crucial artifacts in this repository are not huge missiles, 
but tiny objects that fit in the palm of Morris's hand. It's about an inch long and a half an inch to three quarters of an inch wide. It's a set of keys once stored in the Titan II missile complex. But they weren't meant to open any doors. So what were these keys used for? And how did they play a role in one of the most terrifying events in U.S. history? It's November 22nd, 1963, Dallas, Texas. President John F. Kennedy is campaigning for re-election with the First Lady. The pleasant Texas weather prompts them to drop the top of the presidential limousine. Then, as the car enters Dealey Plaza, shots ring out. One strikes the president in the head. He was shot at approximately 12.30, and he was declared dead about 30 minutes later. As a shocked nation reacts to President Kennedy's death, one question rises above the rest. Who is responsible for this terrible act? In the minutes immediately after the assassination, the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, he joined the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and they basically were monitoring the world for other hostile actions against our embassies. They were waiting to see if this was the opening gambit of World War III. It's a harrowing possibility. In 1963, the Cold War between the U.S. and Soviet Union has never been hotter. But could the assassination really be a Russian first strike? If the Soviet Union had wanted to initiate a preemptive strike against the United States, they had a better chance of success if the United States government is in chaos. But unbeknownst to the general public, the U.S. government has a plan in place. Hundreds of miles away, a small crew stationed at the highly classified missile facility outside of Tucson receives an urgent alert. Stand ready to launch the missile. If the Soviets are behind the assassination, Titan II will be called upon to join the fight. This is everything that you've trained for, but the thing that you hoped would never, ever happen. Even one of these nuclear missiles could decimate all life within an area 900 square miles wide. The crew knows the Russians would surely strike back with their own missiles, instantly plunging both countries into World War III. These missiles, if they were used, were basically going to destroy the world. So you're thinking, this is probably the end. But how exactly is this doomsday weapon launched? with the two unassuming keys now on display at the Titan Missile Museum. These are the actual keys that would have launched the missile when the site was operational. As the crew confronts the possibility of a thermonuclear war, extreme security precautions guide the men who might be asked to turn the keys. It takes both officers to even open the safe to get access to the keys. The officers know that the order to launch the missiles could be only minutes away. So will the world be plunged into thermonuclear war?
November 1963. As the nation grieves the loss of President Kennedy, the government casts a suspicious eye towards the Soviet Union. Fearing the Russians are behind the assassination, the military prepares to retaliate with the most destructive weapon in the American arsenal. Will they trigger a global nuclear war? For the crew at the Titan Missile Complex, their worst fears are fast becoming a reality in the minutes after President Kennedy's death. As the men react to the heightened state of military readiness, the launch keys sit only inches away from the key slot. Once the keys are turned and the launch sequence is initiated, 58 seconds later, the missile will leave the launch duct. 30 minutes, 6,300 miles from here, target two is going to cease to exist. Target two is an unnamed classified city inside the Soviet Union. But just as the men in launch control are preparing to turn the keys, an order comes down from above. And the command is to abort the launch. About 70 minutes after President Kennedy was assassinated, they apprehended Oswald. A 24-year-old misfit named Lee Harvey Oswald has been arrested by the Dallas police. And it now appears that the Soviets were not behind President Kennedy's assassination after all. In that intervening time, no other hostile action had taken place that was directed at the United States. The launch is stopped. World War III is averted. And the crew at the Titan missile silo outside Tucson breathes a collective sigh of relief. Being in that position with the gun cocked, for 60 minutes, it had to have been excruciating. And the launch keys remain in their safe for the next 20 years. Today, they're kept in the museum's collection as a palpable reminder of a time gripped by nuclear fear and of one day in 1963 when those fears were almost realized. From aviation icons to deadly diseases, primitive subs to Ponzi schemes. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 